0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and we're here today with Dr. Melanie McAllister of George Washington University to discuss her book, The Kingdom of God Has No Borders. Dr. McAllister upends conventional wisdom about evangelical Christianity in the United States. She presents a sophisticated analysis showing how race, theological disputes, and global events shaped evangelical perceptions of the world after 1945. Rather than being intrinsically conservative, apathetic, or inward-looking, she shows an evangelical community moving in different directions politically because of social and theological pressures. Dr. McAllister, welcome to the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you went to school.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Well, I am a professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University in D.C., and um, I actually got my PhD in American Studies from Brown University a few years ago. And before that, I was an undergrad in international affairs, international studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So I've kind of worked at the intersection of uh, American culture and international affairs in some sense most of my life.
0: Mm. And what was your dissertation about?
1: (laughs) My dissertation was what became my first book about American perceptions of the Middle East. So that book, Epic Mm -hmm. Encounters, um, really looked at how media representations and discourses about foreign policy intersected to shape American perceptions of the Middle East. And in that book, I discovered how important religion was, which is not something I came in particularly interested in, actually. And so I wrote about both black Muslims and American evangelicals in terms of their relationships or investments in the Middle East, which played a role then in shaping my interest in the current book.
0: Okay. So what led you to this book, Kingdom of God Has No Borders?
1: Well, it's actually a, a Funny story of the book I never intended to write. I mean, I had written about, I was raised a Southern Baptist, but that just meant to me that I never wanted to think about that again. Like I was not at all planning to write a book about evangelicals. I did in Epic Encounters write about evangelicals' investments and involvement in Israel and thinking about prophecy in the 1970s and 80s. And when I wrote that at the time, the book first edition of the book came out in 2001. Nobody had much written about it. It was not commonly talked about. And so after that, I thought, okay, 9-11 happened. A lot of of white American evangelicals were making a lot of comments about Islam. And I thought, I'll just write a quick book on evangelicals and prophecy since I know something about it. And I could just whip that out for in a year or two, you know? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) then I ended up, as I started researching that book, discovering that there was so much more going on in terms of how American evangelicals were thinking about international affairs in the Middle East, but more broadly. And I just kept pursuing one rabbit hole after another until I ended up with a book that's a great deal about American evangelicals involvement with the rest of the world, particularly Middle East and Africa, but that has very little on prophecy. I, I ended up moving beyond that and thinking about other issues that were more interesting to me at the time.
0: Hmm. Okay, so let's let's start with the beginning of the book. Um, you begin the book by talking about these these looming crises that are unfolding over race and racism in the nineteen forties, at first in the United States. And what effect does this have on American evangelicals?
1: You know, this was actually one of the things that was most surprising to me in the research was. Looking back, starting in the 40s, but really increasing in the 50s and early 60s, seeing how American evangelicals in Christianity Today, in his magazine, which is InterVarsity, in Southern Baptist Home Missions magazines, all over, were talking about what they called the crisis in missions. And the crisis in missions was essentially decolonization. That with decolonization, People in the global South, in formerly colonized countries or rapidly decolonizing countries were just less willing to be the subjects of American or European imperial attitudes. And missionaries recognized and missionary supporters recognized that this was really affecting how they thought about missionary work. At the same time, we all know the story about how American policymakers came to be supportive of civil rights, in part because they were concerned about the U.S. image in the world and wanted the U.S. not to uh, be seen as the, uh, the opponent of decolonizing nations, but as their potential ally. The same thing happened among evangelicals. They realized quickly that if they wanted their message about religion to be accepted, they could not be seen as racist and that being identified with the racism that was being so publicly displayed during the fifties and sixties and media and in their newspapers on their radio shows was really a problem. So, um, the, the combination of both decolonization and the civil rights movement led evangelicals to recognize a crisis. Now I should say that they also, there were plenty of evangelicals who also said, oh, and God loves all people equally. So racism is not okay. Anyway, but wasn't it wasn't that they were only instrumental about it? But that that very pragmatic concern really led to a lot of urgency to folks' um, concern about racism.
0: So th- th- this. I think really ties interestingly into the argument of the book. Um, Why don't we outline that briefly? Because the narrative that's always been sort of presented to me about evangelicals and especially evangelical outlook is that it's not necessarily very political and it's sort of conservative and if not retrograde and regressive, at least it's, it's sort of almost apathetic. And what do you see going on instead?
1: That's a great question. So I think that is one of the stories we know about evangelicals or we're told. One is that they're apolitical and the other is they're entirely right wing. And somehow both of these are told together as if they were both true um, and possibly true at the same time. And so what I'm arguing is that, A, evangelicals have never, certainly in the period that I'm looking at, the post-war period, have never been apolitical. That... Part of how they managed to have an image of themselves as apolitical is that they assumed their politics were so correct as to be not quite politics. So they assumed that, of course, we're anti-communist. That's not really politics. That's just morality. Um And so the anti-communism that was at the heart of a lot of evangelicalism, the commitment to missionary work, which, of course, carries all sorts of political valences in context of colonialism, people often didn't acknowledge it as politics. But often they did. I mean, there was a lot of discussion in Christianity Today and in other evangelical venues of explicitly things like, what are we supposed to do about decolonization? How are we supposed to think about Anti-racism, what is the role of the church under communism? Like they were really talking about politics a lot. So then the question becomes, well, is it always – Right wing conversation? And the answer is it is a deeply conservative conversation at many points and in many ways, but there is much more controversy and debate than you would ever imagine given the histories that we know so far. And there are good reasons for that. People want to talk about how the rise of the religious right happened, and to tell that story, you need to look back at the conservative antecedents in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond. But If you don't know that when a civil rights resolution was passed at the Southern Baptist Convention in uh, 1954 and people sing He Leadeth Me, the Southern Baptist hymn that was much beloved, in joy at that, then you don't understand something about the complexity of the history. And if you don't understand that complexity, it almost seems as if People almost aren't accountable for what they believed. If you think nobody challenged racism, then evangelicals seem like, okay, well, that's just all they knew. But it isn't actually all they knew. There were other positions available to evangelicals. And we have to see what those positions were to understand the politics behind them.
0: So that, that gives me a really good sense of what how they're looking at... Um... Racism in the United States. I'm curious, you talk a lot about Congo here specifically, and use that to sort of frame evangelical American concern with uh, the decolonizing global south. What's going on in the Congo? How and how are they looking at it? What do you what what is there a vision that you see there?
1: Yeah, and you know what's funny about Congo in a way is that it's almost the opposite end of what I just described. So missionaries in Congo are so conservative, American missionaries and to some degree Europeans as well. They are far behind even missionaries and missionary politics in the rest of Africa in terms of um, acknowledging Congolese uh, rights to control their own churches, of education in terms of uh education and the levels of education that they were providing, in terms of when Congolese become ministers, all of that is pretty far behind in Congo. And American evangelicals, um, almost all of whom are white, I only found one African American missionary um, among evangelicals when I was in the period that I was looking at in the early 60s, tend to be very worried about decolonization in Congo. They say things like the Congolese are not ready for independence. They think it's just going to make them rich. They don't really know what they're asking for. They're immature. They're not educated. Of course, they weren't educated in part because the churches had not educated them. Um, And so Congo is the case of a great, a a lot of pretty right-wing sentiment uh, among evangelicals. And they come back and talk to people in the United States about their views of Congo. And so uh, evangelicals tend to be a, a retrograde movement in relationship to decolonization in Congo. And they're seen that way by Congolese Christians as well, including many of the people they converted. And so there's a lot of tensions between American missionaries on the ground and local Congolese over things like control of the churches, control of the schools, money, other things like that. Okay. So one of the things I argue and just say briefly, one of the things I argue in the book that I think is um, interesting is that when we think about decolonization as a process, we might also look at decolonization as a process that happens not just to the churches but in the churches. And so Congolese are interested in decolonizing their own churches and they do so in all sorts of ways, both in Congo itself and then as part of a larger decolonization movement in Africa.
0: That's actually a fantastic lead into my next question. So, you know, you talk about mainstream Protestant churches in the 60s and there are all these conversations happening as church leadership is sort of seems to be more liberal than many of the adherents. But even there's a conversation going on among in evangelical churches in the 1960s and 1970s sort of internally about what does it mean? Could you lay that out a little bit for us?
1: Yes, so this is probably one of the uh, more controversial pieces of the book, in the sense that I choose to tell a story about the '60s and '70s that looks at some of the more liberal wings of the evangelical church, primarily University Christian Fellowship, which is not that liberal theologically, but was in the '60s and '70s a site of a certain kind of liberalism. So, especially, especially around issues of race and racism and decolonization and what evangelicals began to call social concern. university um, is a hotbed and it, it you know, at the inter-varsity conferences that happen, which are called Urbana, the conferences happen every three years. In 1970, they actually have, the students have been so restless and so angry, and they've been protesting se- sexism and racism and colon- colonial attitudes and all sorts of things for, since 1967. In 1970, they actually post guards at the base of the um, deus, you know, of the stage, so that people can't run up and grab the mic and start making their own statements. You know, they're so worried about how these young radical students are going to fight back against what they see as the boring, staid, not socially concerned leadership of um, their own churches and of their own organization. So the most popular speakers in 1970 There's Samuel Escobar, who um, speaks to, I don't know, 1,500 students at one time, talking about the importance of Marx and Marcuse for evangelicals to understand social issues. And um, Tom Skinner, who comes and speaks about uh, racism and uh, the American church and the American church's imperial attitudes and how people need to disavow that. So Tom Skinner is an African-American evangelist from Harlem. So... You see a moment when things are very much up in the air, very churned up, and this continues into the Lausanne Congress internationally in 1974, where there's a radical group that, that offers their own uh, consensus statement at the end of the uh, meeting that tries to push for more social concerns, more attention to poverty, racism, colonialism, those kinds of issues from it from the evangelical perspective. So there is so much going on in those moments. And what's in some sense, the tragedy of my book is you see in 1974, 75, the evangelical activists, the social concern folks think they've won. And then, you know, three years later, the moral majority is founded. And so the loss of the possibilities for a more activist, more engaged, liberal kind of evangelicalism is one of the primary stories of the book, really.
0: Mm. So then shifting after that, I think it's it's sort of a good transition point into what evangelicals in the United States are looking at abroad. And the Soviet Union shows up first, which probably isn't a shock to many listeners that evangelicals had, at best, a complicated relationship with the USSR. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes. So the Soviet Union had been of concern to evangelicals for some time ever since, um, well, since well before Richard Wormbrand stands up in front of the Senate, who's a Romanian pastor who had escaped, come to the U.S. He stands up. Uh, before the U.S. Senate in 1966, takes off his shirt, um, which was unusual in the Senate, and shows the scars on his back and says, this is my body, Romania, which has suffered under communist rule. And so R- Wormbrand becomes, he writes a book called Tortured for Christ and becomes a bestseller. He becomes a big leader among a certain subset of evangelicals. And there. Their interest in what's going on in the Soviet Union is um, increased dramatically over the course of the next 10 or 15 years. And so the um, evangelical community is actually quite supportive of the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which is actually designed to help Jews escape the Soviet Union, but which they see as important because they believe – not incorrectly that the Soviet Union is hostile to religion in general. And anytime they can support religion in the Soviet Union, they're helping themselves as well. And then the Siberian Seven, which is a group of Pentecostals who end up holed up in the American embassy in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, Try saying they want to escape, that they are being persecuted for their religion and who end up becoming a a real cause celeb among American and European evangelicals who believe that they should be allowed to, and they ultimately are allowed to leave the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union is, this is a story about evangelicals in general. They get very involved in all sorts of politics, but they get most involved when they can um, tell that story as an individual story, a story about Specific people, and so they were very concerned about the Soviet Union in general. But when you have Richard Wormbrand as a person whose body is marked, or you have this Siberian Seven who are, um, you know, trying to leave the Soviet Union, they're a family. You can name them, you can tell their stories. That's when evangelicals get most, or most likely, to get signed on to a political cause. <laughs>
0: So in a weird way, there's there's a kind of mirroring that actually happens. I think between this chapter on the Soviet Union and then your chapter on South Africa and apartheid. So, how are American evangelicals looking at South Africa in this period? And and what are the what are the divisions? What are the issues?
1: Um, I'm so glad you noticed that. I intended that to be those to be kind of mirror chapters of each other. Or. or um, um almost like bookends of two different approaches that come out of this notion of getting ourselves involved, getting evangelicals involved in political issues and uh, international issues specifically. So one group of people tends to be more involved in the Soviet Union, but another group, and it's not often these groups overlap, but another group ends up getting quite involved or thinking about at least, um, the anti-apartheid movement. And one of the reasons this happens, and this is a major argument of my book overall, is that evangelicals meet, U.S. evangelicals meet and get to know South African anti-apartheid evangelicals, both white and black. And it is those meetings, those, uh, in those international connections where global South evangelicals, in this case, South Africans who, are making their views known, speaking out at international events, speaking up about political issues and trying to recruit other people to their their viewpoint. And that matters. It matters that American evangelicals don't just get involved in global issues based on what they read in the newspaper or what happens to strike them as important, but through these relationships and through the leadership or the um, the demands from people in the global south. So one of the stories I tell in the book is a story of David Howard, who is the president of the World Evangelical Fellowship. He's an American, he's conservative, white guy who goes to a conference, as people often did, goes to an evangelism conference. He's the In South Africa, he's the featured speaker because he's the big name. But he meets an evangelical there, a guy named Cesar Molobazzi, who is being hassled by the white missionaries, German and American in South Africa, um, because he's not taking to their mind a strong enough view against black theology. He's a black guy and they want him to stand up and speak out against black theology. He won't do that. David Howard befriends him. He then says, okay, come tomorrow when the conference is over, come have lunch with me in Soweto at my house. And, you know, David Howard, who is a great believer in the, you know, the the universal community of Christ, says, sure, I'll come to your house and have lunch. And uh, he does. And while he's there, the South African Defense Forces roll in. They want to know who's this white guy having lunch in a township in Soweto in the Soweto township and they arrest him. They arrest him. They arrest Cesar Malabatsi. They arrest the other guy they take them all down to the, um, police station. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that David Howard in 1985 had never been arrested and it made quite an impression on him. And it also made an impression on him that Cesar Malabatsi, uh, was not necessarily going to have to be arrested, but insisted that he should be arrested too, so he could go and accompany Howard to the police station. And eventually they are let out after some talking to by the police. But what Howard comes to realize is the reality of life for somebody like Mulabasi, who considered himself, you know, very much um, theologically conservative evangelical person who Nonetheless, it's clearly and outspokenly against apartheid, and that position makes an impression on Howard. It also becomes even more important because Molobazzi becomes one of the leaders of the evangelical group who write a major uh, testament against apartheid from an evangelical perspective, and that circulates globally. So you begin to see Howard comes back and he starts preaching about how people need to be more outspoken about apartheid. And Cesar Molobazzi takes a role in organizing evangelicals in South Africa of being more outspoken themselves, because they certainly had a strong pietistic, apolitical strain in South Africa. And he is one of the people who pushes the South Africans to behave differently, the South African evangelicals. So it's a very complicated, interactive story, and one that you don't really see unless you can see the evangelical community as a global one. Now, let me be clear. What that does not mean is that David Howard manages to come back and convince the Southern Baptist Convention to divest from apartheid. That does not happen. David Howard does not manage to, you know, suddenly turn around the US white evangelical discussion about apartheid. He doesn't manage to shut Jerry Falwell up, for example. Um, but he is part of a much broader sense of how, you know, we, when we know about his story and others like it, we have a much broader sense of apartheid as a debate among white evangelicals, how to respond to apartheid as a debate. Um, and that story is, um, may, becomes what it becomes in part through these global connections.
0: So we've talked about uh, Russia, we've talked about South Africa, and then several of the chapters that follow discuss the Islamic world and the Middle East. And what are evangelicals looking at there? What, what issues are driving them?
1: Yes. So this is a major issue for evangelicals, especially after the end of the cold war. Um, They began to, in 1989, Louis Bush, who is no relation to President Bush, but a a white evangelical who is from Argentina, is speaking at the big international conference in Manila when he lays out what he calls the 1040 window. And that is the area that he describes as between 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude that is, as he puts it, enslaved by Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. But particularly, he is focused on Islam. And so he says, this is the area where we have to send our missionaries. This is the area where we need to be attentive politically. Like, this is the new map. This is the new part of the world that's going to be in red. There was the communist world before. Now it's going to be the Muslim world. And so the Muslim world becomes a major... um, focus of both missionary attention and political attention. Now, the missionary attention, you can imagine, people are saying, we're going to go and we're going to convert all these folks. And um, it's near the millennium, right? The millennium is coming up the year 2000. People say, maybe we'll convert the whole world by the year 2000. There's a lot of kind of excitement in the air about that. But there is also this other kind of political focus. And that, I argue, comes in part, at least not fully, but in part from what I describe as an evangelical um, modality that I call victim identification. And that is evangelicals, as they begin paying more attention to their fellow believers in the global South, particularly in Africa and the Middle East, they begin seeing Christians as an oppressed community and specifically um, arguing that Christians are oppressed by Muslims in the way that they used to be oppressed by um, communists. And this notion of being in solidarity with oppressed people and see how much that echoes some of the left-wing talk that was coming out of Lausanne of thinking about poverty and a a political oppression by governments. Now they're saying the oppressed people are Christians oppressed by Muslims. So it has almost a kind of left-wing sound to it, but it ends up being one of the drivers behind evangelical anti-Muslim rhetoric, which becomes more and more prominent and not just from Americans, but from, all sorts of leaders in evangelical communities from South Asia, from Africa, from the Middle East. And this becomes one of the ways that Americans and others begin to map the world after the end of the Cold War. And they don't need Samuel Huntington to do it of, as a place of great clash between Christianity and Islam. And so one of the ironies that I talk about in the book is the ways in which a kind of uh, sense of solidarity with suffering others, in this case, suffering Christians, leads to one of the great um, hostilities that animate evangelical life after the end of the Cold War, which is vis-a-vis Islam. Of course, that's not everybody. Many people are trying to challenge that, even from within the evangelical community, but it is very dominant.
0: So it's interesting um they're looking at this part of the world, and then there's a major event in 2000, starting in 2001, but continuing, culminating, I think, in some ways in 2003, and that's the war on terror leading up to the war in Iraq. And where do evangelicals fall on this particular issue, and, and does it change over time?
1: Yes, it does change over time. I mean, it's interesting because evangelicals face the same conundrum that... Uh, mainstream conservative supporters of the war faced, which is that it's really hard to paint Saddam Hussein as being having anything to do with Islam, really. I mean, he likes to talk the talk. He's a Muslim, but he is a secular. He was a secular leader. He was never a person who had much time for um, Muslim activists in his own country. He was oppressive to them. And so How do we talk about both this attack that happened with 9 11 and the genuine rise of um, political, more radical Muslim terrorism and what's going on in Iraq, which is really a totally different thing? But of course, the rhetoric that vaguely paints the Middle East as generally Muslim and generally terrorist is as prevalent among evangelicals as it is in the mainstream media. And that plays a role in leading to strong white evangelical support for the war. And one of the things I do in the book throughout is I try to talk about both African-American and white evangelicals' perspectives on all of these different things we've been talking about. But in this case, white evangelicals support the Iraq war at a very high rate, um, slightly higher than white people in general, And they do so in part because they are primed to see the Middle East as a place of threat and see Islam as a kind of threat. Um, But one of the things I do trace in the book is that there are evangelicals who are opposed to the war and who say so. There aren't many of them at first. And then what happens is, weirdly, the thing that seems to push Many evangelicals to become more outspoken against the war is actually Abu Ghraib. So mm. that happens in two thousand four, two thousand five, um, two thousand five, I believe. And that, um, when that gets exposed, the torture of people at Abu Ghraib by people who claim to be Christian, the the um, reserve officers who were engaging in that torture of prisoners there, a lot of people begin to say hey, this is not okay. Torture is never okay. And what we are doing as a nation has somehow gone off the rails. And so Christianity Today, which is a mainline conservative evangelical magazine, has a cover story, Five Reasons Why Torture Is Always Wrong, written by David Gushy, who is a um, relatively liberal evangelical um, theologian who then takes the lead in writing the evangelical declaration against torture so you know again this is not everybody this is highly controversial within the evangelical community but there are people who um, are both against the war from the beginning and then increasingly over the course of the war uh, come to be doubting whether this is morally or politically okay okay
0: it's hmm. interesting because it, it seemed to me. And granted, this is when I was growing up, so I'm always going to have these odd, peculiar feelings. But so much of the opposition to the war, as I saw it evolve from 2003 to 2007, was about this slow building insurgency that seemed to get worse over time. Here, Abu Ghraib seems to have been yet yeah, this this galvanizing moment for many evangelicals, or at least a, a vocal minority of them.
1: Yes, I think that it is different than the mainstream secular conversation, and it's different um, in part because... The kinds of things that, the kinds of moral discourse that evangelicals had about the war was often based on the question of, is this a just war? That was the specific conversation among many Christians, but including evangelicals. And then the issues of morality, what what makes something a just war or unjust war often hinges on proportionality and morality of the war and the cause, those things are what turn people more quickly not, not that evangelicals are turned more quickly it just means that those things have more traction among evangelicals than they probably have in the general population which is more inclined to look at kind of pragmatic questions like this is not working um, and so evangelical conversation around the war does look rather different I mean of course Americans in general were concerned about the, what happened at Gray, but that kind of came and went in the larger discourse in ways that surprised many of us but it did, mm-hmm. it did have a long-term and profound effect among some and uh, an outspoken number of uh, evangelical leaders.
0: So th- this next question, I-, I smiled when I got to this bit in your book because I don't often get to see an author sh- like show up in their own monograph, particularly a history monograph, and yet you actually show up as an actor of sorts in yeah. this. What were you doing in 2006?
1: I was busy in 2006. <laughs> um, so... I have been asked this question before, kind of what does it mean to combine historical methods and ethnographic methods in some sense? So in 2006, one of the things I did was to go on a short term mission with Ellenbrook Church, which is a church in Brookfield, Wisconsin, a big mega church whose pastor, whose missions, who's head of the global missions program. I knew um, through the research I'd done for the book and who agreed to let me go on their trip to what was in Southern Sudan. And for me, historical research and ethnographic research don't feel so different. They feel like this is the work you need to do to figure out what happened and what's going on in the moment that you're looking at. If you are looking historically, you have archival materials. If you're looking in the moment in which you're living, you do not generally. Or you have newspapers, but not the kind of archival material we draw upon as historians. So I decided if I wanted to understand what was going on in the current moment, I needed to show up and go with people on these various trips. And I found that trip to Sudan to be one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. Um, but one of the things that was so powerful about it is that Again, this was a church that had pretty strong connections with local Christian leaders. So when they went, as opposed to when some other groups go, they actually were visiting churches and church people that they knew in southern Sudan. And so their experience, their interactions, the kinds of things that the Americans saw, the kinds of things that the Sudanese had to say about what was going on, those really were built out of a sense of, Um, connection among these Southern Sudanese and these Americans, however complicated that connection might be. And the name of that chapter, if you might recall, is called I'm Not a Big Checkbook. And that is what Dick Robinson, the minister who I went and was leading the trip and who had invited me to go, kept saying when he arrived in South Sudan, he well knew. And it certainly was the case that people completely saw him as a big checkbook. What else would you see? a minister from a church whose wealth is so far beyond anything that anybody in that group has ever seen or known, but they know these people are wealthy. They know they've flown here. They know that they have, uh, you know, all the resources of America behind them and they are wanting help in a situation of great poverty. And so the tension between not wanting to show up and be lady bountiful on the one hand and on the other hand, recognizing a kind of responsibility for um, dealing with or responding to the poverty right in front of them was one of the kind of tensions that animated my telling of that story of that trip. Mm. And then
0: your following chapter, it it also, it looks at American evangelical relationships in a different part of Africa focusing not exclusively, but closely on Uganda. Yeah. What's going on there in the two thousands and early 2010s.
1: Yeah. Um, And that's a very different kind of story, one that I also wanted to tell in a little bit of a contrarian fashion. I had been following, like many people, the rise of the anti-homosexuality law in Uganda, a law that got passed in 2009 originally that provided for the death penalty for homosexuality. I was very concerned about that as somebody who had been involved in uh, queer activism in the 80s and beyond and just as a human um, and so I was following what was going on there and the story that we got told at the time was often the story that American right-wingers and scooting this guy named Scott Lively had shown up and basically um, injected these Ugandans with anti-homosexual attitudes. Scott Lively is a very, very right-wing person who wrote something called the Pink Swastika, which argued that homosexuals were responsible for Nazism. Um, And he has no following, essentially, in the U.S., but he had enough in Uganda to get a hearing and to hold a series of trainings and speak before Parliament. And So there was a good reason to be really deeply concerned about what this guy was doing. But I was interested in what I knew to be the case, which is that Uganda and a couple of other places um, had been central to the rise of a more conservative movement in the anglican communion and a conservative evangelical strand in the anglican communion that had been opposed to ordaining women and uh, homosexual people for well over 10 years by that point and so i wanted to again trace the complex history of people interacting across national borders over time um, to see how the rise of anti-homosexuality activism in Uganda was fueled not just by specific attitudes towards those people, but also by kind of anti-colonialism. They saw, especially in the Anglican communion, the bishops tended to see Americans and Europeans as trying to impose a liberal agenda when they believed that a more, straightforward conservative one was correct and they felt that they were being treated in condescending and colonialist ways by the americans and so you can see the really complicated ways that anti-colonialism fueled a conservative ideology around gender and homosexuality that comes to fruition with again the impact of americans but also um, a lot of other things coming together in the 2009 to 2014 period.
0: And what's interesting is the position it places those evangelical, the American evangelicals in, in back in the United States. What happens there?
1: Yeah. Well, people like Scott Lively don't care. They're they happy to just push for the far right wing as they can. Lou Eagle, some other ones do, Lou Engle, some other ones do the same thing. But people like Rick Warren, who had strong ties in Uganda, and links with even one of the, pastors who was a leader in the anti-homosexual movement in uganda warren had ties with that guy from his hiv aids work um and from his um what he calls his peace plan which is more involved with uh economic development in africa he had ties in rwanda and uganda and warren is in a he's in a bind i mean he knows that when he speaks out against this law he is going to be accused of being a colonialist. He knows the scene there and he is very um, quietly not saying anything for several months until public pressure is raised and he actually then uh, makes a YouTube video that is a kind of Christmas letter to the Ugandan pastor saying I'm really opposed to this law, but it seems to a lot of Americans too little and too late. Um, And Warren is in a position where as, as he knew what happened, he had to know what happened, the Martin Sempa who's the Reverend, he had been buddies with, and who would come to some of his HIV/AIDS um, conferences. Warren Sempa just basically says, "What is wrong with you? We have as much theology as you do. We know what's right and wrong, and you people cannot tell us what to think. We are—we have the right to make our own decisions in Uganda." And you know, it plays out in a way that is as complicated, ugly, and. Historically, very rich for a historian, even somebody who's a historian of something that's happening almost right in front of our eyes, um, to see the ways in which race, gender, the history of colonialism, American power, American money, all interact in this very, very complicated debate in Uganda. So,
0: what's interesting to me about the final chapters is you do you you trace out several different ways that people are sort of putting their faith into practice in the, in the global South, especially because they, they've identified this region as being so critical. Um, short-term missions show up, for example. Mm-hmm. And at, at some level, do you feel like this book is a way to try of pointing out how evangelicals understand the global South? Cause it, it sometimes seems chapter on the Sudan or chapter on Uganda or, or the short-term missions for that matter. Like, American evangelicals are looking at their Global South counterparts as a, as a kind of complementary other to themselves. Do you get that at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I call in the book the other modality. I talk about victim identification as one kind of modality through which Americans have engaged the Global South, and I talk about enchanted internationalism as the other. And I use that's a phrase I developed to try to highlight the ways in which Americans could idealize people in the global South and that really does happen but that that idealization is linked to a exoticization a way of wanting in some sense whether explicit or implicit for African or Asian or Latin American evangelicals to be emotional resources for them and so They are looking, I mean, in a period where a lot of American evangelicals are concerned about having um, whether their faith is vibrant enough, lively enough. I mean, this becomes this is an issue from 1960 on. They look and see what they can sometimes um, see as the. Heightened intensity or greater sincerity what they see is the heightened intensity or greater sincerity of believers in the global south And they use that as a kind of resource for themselves uh, a kind of renewal This is a form of primitivism and we've seen it in the US and in Europe many times where people look to um, Tahiti, you know, if you're Cezanne and you're painting uh, you know, Tahiti in the 19th century It's this idea that we've lost something and that those folks still have it. And so if we can visit or we can engage or we can see them as our ideals, we might be able to get some of it back without having to give up the wealth and the power and the modernity that maybe separated Americans from that. Now, all of this is a fantasy. I want to be clear. Um, It's a fantasy of what people's lives are like in the global south. It's a fantasy of ourselves, or and I say ourselves not because I'm an evangelical, but because we are all guilty of this of ourselves as hyper modern and rational, as if we don't live our through our emotions just like everybody else in the world. But that fantasy is um, a really important structuring modality for how um, evangelicals often engage the global south.
0: Mm. So one thing that, that struck me once I'd finished the book, you know, th- this is all going at the, on at the same time. as there's there's an activist wing of sort of mainline Protestant churches. Um, I'm thinking of National Council of Churches during the civil rights movement, or the World Council of Churches support for the ANC in South Africa and SWAPO in Namibia, and and then you have evangelical churches, surely witnessing all of this happening. What is their perspective on their sort of the the National Council of Church or the World Council of Churches variety of activism?
1: Oh, that's a great question. One of my favorite things to think about. But uh, David Hollinger, who just finished a book on uh, mainline missionaries, ecumenical missionaries, and their you know what they brought back from their service as missionaries in the forties through the sixties, he and I have ended up co- conversing about this many times, you know, what are the mainline folks doing? What are the evangelicals doing? How is it different? There are some similarities in that both, in both cases, missionaries are sometimes on the leading edge of a kind of cultural relativism or cultural appreciation for people who live in non U S context. Um, not always, but sometimes, but, Politically, they're very, very different. And so, in fact, the World Council of Churches is one of the things that American evangelicals are most hysterical about, most concerned about. They talk about the World Council of Churches in ways that, you know, make the World Council of Churches out seem far more powerful than I think it ever really was. But they're concerned about two things. One is actually it's real competition. The World Council accepts evangelical churches into the world council evangelicals in the u.s say oh no the world council is all liberal Protestantism but that is not true certainly African many African churches Latin American churches churches in the Middle East who would fit the definition the theological definition of evangelical are nonetheless affiliated with the World Council they are you know they understand that that's a big organization that seems to represent a lot of people and evangelicals are always fractured into 50 or 60 different organizations so you know they just sign up and the Evangelicals are always saying, like, I have a, a, a great moment when in Congo in the early 1960s, they were like, oh, people are going over to this World Council Churches Conference. And, you know, if you just listen to what they say, it seems spiritually fine, but we know that they're evil because they are, uh, you know, they have a liberal theology, which some do and some don't, but that's the view that evangelicals see. And then politically, they get, they are very, very, um, often very, very opposed. And so even though there are um, evangelicals in the U.S. and in South Africa who are opposed to apartheid and activists on that score, they are not the kind of folks who are going to believe in funding the ANC in 1968, which is what the World Council does. Uh, The World Council loses a lot of money as a result of that, through a lot of donations. It's very controversial. But they were taking the position that we need to end racism by any means necessary and the ANC is the best chance for ending apartheid um, in South Africa. um, This leads to a great deal of um, posturing on the part of evangelicals who basically say, this just shows you how, you know, uh, left-wing and far off the base uh, the World Council of Churches is, and they they are a danger, and we need to oppose them at every possible turn. So, there is an ongoing almost sense of self-definition that evangelicals do vis-a-vis what they see as the liberal Protestant churches. Um, it, I will just say that the Lausanne Congress in 1974, which is the biggest meeting of that, at that point of evangelicals in 60 years, that Congress is held in Lausanne, Switzerland, right 30 minutes from Geneva, which is the uh, home base of the World Council of Churches. And I'm convinced that that was absolutely intentional. It was absolutely a way of saying we are the other major global group, and we are here to compete with you.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's funny to think about. So then, and, and you touched on this a little bit in discussing South Africa, um, the sort of uncomfortability with black theology, you know James Cohn, how are the how are American evangelicals looking at these more, even radical, liberal, um, theological trends such as liberation theology.
1: Well, now here's a good moment to bring in what black evangelicals are thinking versus what white evangelicals are thinking. Um, I could go on and on about how I define evangelicals in a way that includes african-american people as central to that story but let me just say that there are ways to talk about say the ame church or other historically black churches which are part of the world council of churches which are in some ways mainline but which theologically are closer to the theological definitions we use for evangelicalism but aside from those churches there are also all sorts of people african-american people who are involved in the Organizations that we think of as white evangelicalism, from Intervarsity to the Billy Graham Association, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and there is a group of folks who formed the National Black Evangelicals Association in the late 1960s, and they um, are very self-consciously saying. At first, they were pretty conservative and saying we need to basically follow the same uh, pre-post, you know, premillennial Premillennial dispensationalism that the white evangelicals were following, and you know they tend to be pretty um, theologically in, undifferentiated from the the white churches they come out of often. But over time, they become much more strong advocates of black theology, and the A.M.E. Church is very much also an advocate of black theology, and they say we need to see how theology has to be told in the register of black people who are oppressed because Jesus was concerned about the oppressed. It's not just that this is good for us. This is the theology that is most in line with the kind of thinker, the kind of person Jesus was. And this is actually, although James Cone is hugely influential in South Africa, he is also influenced by the fact that, Christianity is big in the global South, from you know from the 1960s onward, and we know that Christianity in Africa is <clears throat> rising, increasing in number, going to be more important. People already know that by 19 by late 1960s, early 1970s, and so he and others are saying this is the this is what Christianity is going to look like. It is going to be people of color as dominant. So we have to be able to speak in a register that speaks to their experience in their lives. (laughs) And that is taken up by African-Americans from um, all ends of the theological spectrum in the United States.
0: Fascinating. So, is and you, you, you use the word social justice, uh, and I think the chapter on Cairo um, towards the end of the book. And I, I just sort of walked away wondering is there something like a unified vision of social justice to evangelicals, or, or does it splinter maybe along racial and demographic lines? And is it distinct from mainline ideas of social justice or presumably secular social justice?
1: Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, one of the things I talk about in that chapter on Cairo, which is about a group of university students doing a short-term mission in Cairo um, 2006, 2007, and they, the, I, I am intending to show already the tensions among them by talking about the Arab, Arab American woman and the African American woman who are in some conflict over how to think about Egypt and how to think about the Sudanese and that they're working with who are in Egypt, but they are working with Sudanese refugees there. And so I'm already wanting to show that even among people who consider themselves sort of social justice-minded, there's all sorts of tensions and difference and experience. Um, now, the Arab woman that I quote there, the Arab-American woman, that I look at her experience pretty carefully in Egypt, she is <clears throat> entirely atypical in that she says to me, I believe that every word in the Bible is literally true. So that's why I'm a socialist. This i never heard from anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's new all right. Um, But it's certainly not something that would be unfamiliar to people in mainline Protestant churches. I mean, it's not common, but it's not, it would be. You know, something you could imagine people saying is very uncommon among evangelicals. So already, we're going to, I'm going to say no. There is no single social justice vision among evangelicals today, even among that minority evangelicals who would consider themselves socially justice-minded. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention, some minister in the Southern Baptist Convention this year, um, it was in June, tried to propose a resolution against social justice, <laughs> that, that really happens.
0: <laughs> Such a funny position to take. Um,
1: yeah, like, what? This doesn't even make sense. But I took it also as, you know, these conservative folks are seeing that there is a rise of a consciousness among especially younger evangelicals that is more oriented around issues like poverty, issues like um, oppression by government, They often are people who tend to be um, more interested in thinking about um, racism and the problem of race internationally and domestically, but left-wing, what we might call, I have to put it in quotes, even though you can't see me, quote, Mm left-wing evangelicals or liberal evangelicals on those issues will still almost uniformly tend to be against abortion. So they tend to be quite different than the, the secular left in that way. They tend to be more conservative than secular leftists on on queer rights issues, although more liberal than older generations of evangelicals. This younger generation of evangelicals that I'm sort of pointing to in that last chapter of the book are far more liberal around queer stuff than their parents or their grandparents ever were, but still tend to be more conservative. They tend to be more wary about issues like marriage, although, again, more wary than left-wing secular people, but far more liberal than the previous generations. So um, I think there are many kinds of debates. Oh, and I will say the other thing. I just published an article actually about evangelicals of color in the Trump era, and several people I talked to, not everybody, but several people said, you should notice that African-American and Asian-American and Latino evangelicals tend not to prioritize abortion and uh, queer issues in the same way that white evangelicals tend to. Mm. We are more interested in people thinking about incarceration, migration, racism, those kinds of issues as fundamental baseline issues. And that's also a distinction. There are white evangelicals who agree with them, who who see themselves as more social justice-minded. But as a general thing, you're going to see more of that among evangelicals of color, than you see among white evangelicals. So no, it's a very fractured and quite a very fractured picture, and something that is quite um, in the process of change. I think Trump's election has changed a great deal around race among evangelicals. It has highlighted the racial tensions in a community that was becoming more racially diverse, more self-consciously race, racially diverse, more transnational. Um, Trump has has been for them as for so many other people line in the sand. Um, there's one woman I interviewed who said, you know, white evangelicals are a little like my Latino friend from New Mexico. She said her family back in the 19th century, they never moved from Mexico to the U S but the border moved over them. One day they were in the U S and you know, the next year, I mean, one day they're in Mexico, and the next year they're part of the U.S. because the border moved, right? The war Mm. happened and the border changed. She said, white evangelicals are kind of in the same position. They used to be able to just sit where they were and say nothing about racism, and we would sort of presume that they were okay unless they did something bad. She says, now the border has moved, and unless you have deeds done, we are going to presume that you are part of a racially racist system.
0: Fascinating. That's so interesting to think about. I've taken up a lot of your time today, but I just wanted to conclude by asking one more thing, and I know Mm -hmm. you've just gotten this book published, so you're probably not eager to dive right back into publishing another one. What are you thinking of working on next?
1: Oh, I'm so eager to dive into publishing another one. (laughs) I've been working on this one so long. Um, I am working uh, on a book on the popular culture of humanitarianism in the 70s, what I'm calling the long 1970s, from 1968 to the early 80s, starting with the global response to the Nigeria biafra War. That happens in 67, and that's where those pictures of babies with big bellies start to circulate. There was a starvation in Afra that got a real international response, including in the U S how Americans got themselves involved in that humanitarian crisis. And then sort of tracing all sorts of different cases where Americans did or did not respond to a crisis from Bangladesh to Soweto to Lebanon. And then um, the book is going to end with the famine in Ethiopia. I think. And uh, right now I'm tentatively calling it. We were the world.
0: (laughs) That's a great title. I'll look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here today.
1: All right. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to new books in history, a podcast channel on the new books network.